Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Welcome to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. This week's episode is kind of a celebration of community and family and bagels. Ahead on Seasoned, we'll shine a light on two local bagel makers we're very excited about. And we're going to learn about Zabar family history from the new book exploring the origin of the iconic New York City market. David and Willie Zabar give us a tour of the store coming up. But first, we'll talk with recipe developer and author Jake Cohen about how practicing Shabbat affirms his connection to both the gay and Jewish communities he's passionate about uplifting. Jake Cohen is a food writer and editor, and you've seen his work on Savoir, Time Out New York, Food and Wine, and on Tasting Table and Food 52. He is perhaps one of the best holibrators on the planet, and his first cookbook is called Jew-ish, Reinvented Recipes from a Modern Mensch. Jake Cohen, welcome to Season. Hi, so excited to be here. It's wonderful to speak to someone else who is Jew-ish. I am a quarter Jewish, and growing up in the Bronx, New York, I would say I am Jew-ish. But for the uninitiated, can you explain what that means and how it made its way into the title of your cookbook? Yeah, I think that it's so personal for everyone who refers to them that way or refers to their practice as being Jewish. It really comes down to how they identify. For me, I always explain that I am Jewish, no hyphen, period. However, the way that I practice being a Jewish person in New York in 2022, it's not traditional. It's very unconventional, and that's where the ish comes into play. We have a true kind of blessing to modernize our culture, our food, our religion to make it fit a modern life. And to me, I think that's the beauty of the evolution of Jewishness. But the thing that I really love is how many people connect to this in a million one different ways. It's people who might have been raised and, and one parent is Jewish, one parent is not. They married someone who's Jewish. Their roommate was Jewish. They worked in a Jewish space. Like There are so many different worlds in which someone creates this affinity to Jewish culture. And to me, I think it needs to be celebrated. In the same way that you'll look at your cookbook shelf, and I can promise you it represents cultures that you have not represented in, in your own personal identity, but that you have an affinity towards. And we need to be celebrating that in the Jewish space as well. When you talk about personal identity, you dedicate this book to your husband, Alex. How does that figure into this cookbook's existence? And how do you tell those stories through your recipes? Yeah, I always say that this book, first and foremost, is like a queer love story. Um, it's about our journey as a young gay couple trying to figure out what our Jewish identity was going to be. And we found that through hosting Shabbat. And that was such an important journey for us to really find that sense of community, that sense of deeper understanding of our own personal identity, and really feeling like we had the permission to kind of go with it as we wanted. I think when you come at Jewishness already from the perspective of being gay, 
we're already breaking rules of tradition. So then it's like, all right, if you broke one, why not another? And it allows us to kind of create a really sustainable practice that is very much in tune with pride in Judaism the same way that we have pride in, in being gay. I would be remiss if I did not bring this up because I think it's important, at least to me. So my grandfather was not born Orthodox. He was born Jewish. And he was rejected by his own people when he proposed to a Jewish woman, but was embraced by an Afro-Latino family when he proposed to my grandmother. So to me, that kind of your story exemplifies the diaspora and how far we've come and how mm -hmm. far we still need to go, but that above all, we can celebrate it with great food. Jake, I'm so excited to talk to you because the book is absolutely gorgeous. I was just thumbing through it yet again. I've been looking at it all week. Can you explain the personal importance of Shabbat dinners and walk us through what a typical Shabbat dinner looks like at your house? So Shabbat, it's one of the most incredible Jewish rituals that we still practice today. And it is the day of rest. It's from sundown on Friday night to sundown on Saturday. And it is this designation of difference. So you work so hard during the week, and this is this moment in which you have to unplug, recharge, be present with those you love, and put some real intention towards the day being holy. And what does that mean to you? There's a different definition for every person. For me and my family, it's gathering those that we love around a table in which I cook a feast, and we get to be present. And in a world that's truly nonstop, especially living in the city, this stuff never goes to sleep. The internet never ends. It's constant. So to have one day, one evening in which we can be like, put the phone away, be present with those you love, it really does give energy back to you to prepare you for doing it all over again when the next week hits. We can't talk about Shabbat and not talk about the nonprofit organization One Table. We want to make sure our millennial listeners know about One Table's mission. Can you talk about that? One Table is the reason that I got so into Shabbat. It's an incredible nonprofit that focuses on helping people in their 20s and 30s find, create, and sustain a Shabbat practice in their lives that works for them. And they provide all of the resources from everything for how you host, how you can say the prayers, whether in Hebrew, in English, in neither, and with some type of alternative reading to really get the gist of, of the why that we do all of these rituals. Because at the end of the day, the why are all conversations on community, moral, ethics, intention that really can be as much as you want when it comes to traditional religious aspects. And then at the same time, like they help provide some nourishment and help subsidize your Shabbat by helping pay for the groceries. It was something that changed everything in terms of how I wanted to practice being a Jew. When we think about the way that we treat being queer, I always compare it to like that uncle who you would hear say something like absolutely terrible, like, oh, I don't have a problem with gay people, but why can't they just keep it at home? Why do they have to be gay in front of me? That's kind of how America treats us as Jews. We think because we've obviously come so far um, that that's not the case, but really like in America, you could be Jewish around the high holidays, you could be Jewish when you're in shul, you could be Jewish when you're in your bubby's house, but outside of that, it's not necessarily encouraged or celebrated. When you look at a representation in media, it's all focused around trauma. It's focused around the Holocaust. It's focused around people having to leave Orthodox communities, but not necessarily around Jewish joy. 
And I, I think it, it's super important that we kind of shift that narrative that way. And a huge part of that is focusing on some really incredible rituals and celebrations and communities. And Shabbat is at the top of that list. I know at Shabbat, you have to have those three things, the wine, the bread, and what else is it? Candles. And, and the whole reason is igniting the candles. It's the last act of work. It's that designation that we're going in to a, a period of time that is designated as the Sabbath. The wine is the whole point of sanctifying the space. It's taking something as mundane as grapes and turning it into to wine, something that could be representative of holiness. And that's not necessarily like religiousness or, or something, anything more than taking the average and turning it into something special. It's creating that intention behind that this day is going to be special. And then the bread, because you can't really connect with other people unless there's food on the table. Every Friday night, you and your husband do that. That sounds great to me. I love that story. And speaking of bread... I'm holding up this. You've got lasers in the background, Jake. You're holding up the most beautifully braided challah I have ever seen. Talk to me about what was happening in this picture. Yeah. I mean, this is like Stranger Things. I don't know, but I, I'm here for it. I don't take myself very seriously. I don't think anyone really should. It's like I have a lot of fun with what I do. I think when people in the food space get like so serious about everything. Yeah, they get dark and moody. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. It's like get over yourself, all of it. And I think one of the things that I really wanted to do is celebrate Jewishness through a lens of camp. So it was something that I had seen. It went viral. This guy who did this his yearbook photo with his cat. I think probably inspired by that, Paper Magazine did this shoot with the Jonas Brothers, and it was Nick Jonas with a ferret doing pretty much like this style. And I was like, great, I want to do this, but with challah. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing I do is traditional, but again, I think traditional is boring. You are the star of that photograph, but can we talk about the challah? And do you have any tips for our listeners who like making bread and maybe want to dip their toe into the, the challah business? It comes down to three things. First is your flour. People are so set on on a recipe and not necessarily understanding some of the science behind it. So down to like measuring. People are always shoving their, their measuring cups into the bag of flour and that's compacting the flour. So flour is the one thing. I'm not a huge like metrics person just because developing recipes for the majority of my career, we don't we live in volume measurements in America, and that's just how it is, with the exception of flour. I always give grand measurements for flour. I think that's the most important thing. Everyone should own a kitchen scale, if only for their flour. So that's super important. The other thing is is kneading your challah. People are so afraid of like overworking doughs because of what we're taught in the world of cakes. At the end of the day, you're not going to overwork your bread. You need to build up a gluten structure. It needs a lot of kneading, especially if you're doing it by hand. Even in a mixer, like you can really let it go for a long time. And that's the secret to really having structure to your bread. And then the last thing is proofing. So the the rise, when you, you let it sit and double in size, people are so set on a recipe's time frame when at the end of the day, that's going to vary every week, depending on the temperature, the humidity, where you are in the country. It could take twice as long in New York than it does for me in Florida. It's a visual cue. Once it's doubled in size, you move on. Until then, you got to be patient. And patience is the, the one ingredient that nobody has in their kitchen. 
That's why we all stare at the pot and wait for it to boil, and it seems to take longer. Exactly. You know, I think you're absolutely right there. With a lot of yeast leaven things, I mean, there is a lot of forgiveness with that. You know, it's not like you're 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 doing a chemical reaction. You're, it's a natural reaction from the yeast, you know, producing carbon dioxide. And the stronger that gluten is, the bigger the bubbles can get. Growing up with Ashkenazi cuisine and your husband grew up with Persian, Jewish, and Iraqi culinary traditions, what are some of the signature dishes that excite you the most from Alex's heritage? And have they passed the mother-in-law test? Because that's the most important one. Yes, they all passed the mother-in-law test. My favorites, the ones in the book, kubba, they're these semolina dumplings stuffed with meat, and they look different depending on where you are in the Middle East. Another thing you really need to remember is that like, in America, we love a monolith, and it's one of the things I hate with food magazines. They always want, like, the best blank. Yeah. And authenticity really can only span as far as one family. When I think of, of matzo ball soup, brisket, like, everyone does it a little differently. So how can you say, like, one is the best, one is the most authentic, when it's just this culmination of all history and hundreds and hundreds of years of cooking? So kubba is a perfect example of that because it – is from the Levant. It's from the Middle East, but it's going to look different. Kurdish kubba is going to look different from the kubba you'll find in Iraq. It varies, and you'll see different soups and stews, and some doughs will use ground rice, some will use semolina, some will be stuffed with chicken, some will be stuffed with beef. So this one, the Iraqi one that's really most classic, it's a sweet and sour beet stew with these beef stuffed semolina dumplings, and they're so good. bit time-consuming, but it's worth every second. And then Persian food at the top of the list is tadik, crispy Persian rice. It's just, it's just heaven. I, I think it's something that when I got exposed to that cuisine, it's so incredible. And my husband's family is always like, oh, thank you, because I'm the first one who's writing down the recipes, which is the, the hardest thing to swallow is that if I wasn't here, we are really one generation away from them just disappearing. And I think that's that's something that has to be so integral to everyone's story, whether you're Jewish, whether you're not, kind of documenting your family's history. And a lot of that's through food. Yeah, a lot of it is through food. And I love that you put your particular riff on some of the Jewish classics, Reuben Babka filling, shakshuka ala vodka. Talk to me about that because I think I've got the shakshuka down. I always say that my husband is my muse because of the fact that like he's has no reference for Ashkenazi food. I have no reference for Mizrahi food. And neither of us really grew up with like Sephardic food, which shakshuka is a perfect example of. We come to it where we'll try something and we'll be like, huh, wouldn't this be fun like this or with this? I just start to play with it. Again, I think of part of not taking myself too seriously. It's like there are no rules. Like what's the worst that can happen? Someone's mad that I, I put some some heavy cream in, or sour cream in, in shakshuka. It's like, all right, well, then don't eat it. Then don't eat it. Then don't eat it. Then don't eat it. It's like I have a lot of friends in like the, the acting theater world. And there was this like great advice I got one day from someone, which was when it comes to like Broadway stars and like rev acting reviews of their shows. It's like if you take in and believe all of the rave reviews and you're going to have to like believe all the criticisms, you got to take everything with a grain of salt. So if a lot of people love the shakshuka alavaca, amazing. And they do. But if you don't, then... His mother always says Aluiak, which is like go to go with God. Like it's like whatever. Like you do it. I have just as many Yiddish expressions for it too. I love it. Are there any of the dishes or the recipes that you included in this cookbook that you say, you know what? I don't want to mess with this one. This one I like old school, classic, 
tradition? And if so, which one is it? Yeah, I mean, the kubba definitely was that in terms of super traditional. But also, it's like, I wanted to really, really embrace chicken soup and like the matzo ball soup, like having a perfect matzo ball, a perfect chicken soup. It's my ultimate comfort food. It is the food I could eat every day for the rest of my life. I'm with you on that one. Absolutely. Hey, I got to tell everyone, might as well too, that if they haven't done so yet, you have to watch Jake make his holla on TikTok. It is pretty fun and it's taken the world by storm. It's been really fun to see people every week bake my challah. And, and it's something that I think is super important to tradition, to celebration of identity. And you see so much pride. And that's what it's all for. I can't wait to go make challah right now. The way you show how easy it is to braid it. I love that. I think the step-by-step photos is fantastic. Uh, Jake, the book is amazing. Thank you for taking a few minutes to hang out with us. And uh, look forward to uh, sending you some pictures of my challah on Instagram. <laughs> can't wait. Can't wait. <laughs> that was food writer and cookbook author Jake Cohen. Need a mood booster? Take Plum's advice. Spend some time watching Jake on TikTok braiding challah. You can also cook some Jew-ish classics of your own. You'll find three recipe excerpts from Jake's book on our website. The fun-sounding Everything Bagel Galette, Roasted Chicken Matzo Ball Soup, and of course, Jake's recipe for challah. Later in the hour, the local Connecticut bagels that rival the bagels in New York City. True story. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Coming up after the break, the iconic grocery Zabar's has been a New York institution for almost 90 years. We'll talk with the members of the Zabar family to learn about the store's history and get a sense for what the Zabar experience is like today. It is a little bit like a bazaar or marketplace where there's things everywhere, a little bit of commotion, a little overwhelming stimulation, but it's lots of fun. This is Seasoned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Zabar's Gourmet Grocery on 80th and Broadway in New York City is as iconic as the I Heart New York t-shirt. There's the instantly recognizable orange logo, the legendary smoked fish, the deli, the bagels, custom roasted coffee, the babka, and the family. Zabar's has been a culinary destination run by one family for almost 90 years. The family and the store's history is captured in the new book, Zabar's, a family story with recipes. The author is Lori Zabar, the granddaughter of Louis and Lily Zabar, the original founders of the grocery. Lori passed away in February 2022, but David Zabar, Lori's brother, and Willie Zabar, David's son, are joining us from the busy market to share some Zabar's history with us and give us a sense for what shopping there is like. David, Willie, welcome to Seasoned. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So Zabar's is regarded as a New York institution and a cultural hub. That's kind of developed a bit of a cult following. Why is the store so beloved? We focus on quality products and we're a family business. So people enjoy coming here. We've been here since uh, 1934. So long time. over time, we've built up a following. Willie, tell us about Zabar's as a shopping experience, just to kind of paint a picture for everybody. Well, you come to Zabar's and it's it's like being in another world. You know, you, you see everyone you've ever met. 
you'll run into them here. You know, there's the counter people that have been working there forever and then some new faces. It can be kind of overwhelming, I'll be honest. But it's, it's kind of like going to a family party, at least for me. There's a lot of smells. There's a lot of people. And I don't know. It's, it's that in-person shopping experience that I think a lot of us were missing out on during a lot of the pandemic. I think everybody should go there at least once in your life. I always say people, I think everybody should work in a restaurant and go to Zabar's at least once. I agree. Yes. Uh, also, it's, it, it's a little bit like a bazaar or marketplace where there's things everywhere. We have the cheese department and the deli and the smoked fish and the coffee and we're grinding coffee beans and you could smell that and a little bit of commotion, a little overwhelming stimulation, but it's lots of fun. You know, with other private chefs I've worked with in the city, we used to always say, if Zabar's doesn't have it, we probably shouldn't serve it. <laughs> <laughs> the new book is called Zabar's, a family story with recipes. And it tells a story kind of the family history from a personal standpoint. How did it feel to read the fully documented true story of where you came from, David? Well, there's a lot that I didn't know in the past. You know, I knew my grandparents came here and they met and they started the business. And actually in Russia, my grandfather had to leave. There were pogroms where uh, family members were killed uh, in Russia and a lot of anti-Semitism. And a lot of the details didn't come out until my sister did the research and she found other documentation and spoke to descendants from the families from the same town. That fills in things we didn't even think about or know about. How about you, Willie? Well, it was interesting because I feel like I had understanding of kind of the bare bones of, you know, where we came from the year that we set up shop in this location. But there's so much stuff like apparently we had five or six locations at one point before there was a conscious decision to pare it down to just one. You know, seeing photos of the old neighborhood, it really gave background to this place I've spent so much time. And it's like reading your family's genealogy. It's like, imagine someone wrote a book about your family. It's crazy. The book is a story of immigration, family, and so much food. It's a great read, especially if you love New York culinary history. We asked Willie to share a bit of the family's and the store's origin story. My great-grandparents, Louie and Lily, they grew up in a town called Ostropol in what is now Ukraine. And they knew each other, they were family friends, and there was a series of pogroms, which kind of you know led a lot of people to flee to other parts of the world, especially the United States and Canada. So Louie and Lily actually came to America separately. They were not married. They were not together. And they ran into each other in New York City. They got together and started you know, a series of businesses, mostly in Brooklyn, but then eventually you know, partnering in Manhattan. Something I learned from the book was always Lily's dream to live in Manhattan. So they moved all around the city, and eventually they got just the smoked fish counter inside a larger store on 80th and Broadway. And eventually they were able to actually buy the rest of the store and then buy the other stores next to it. Uh, and that's actually how Zabar's came to be where it is now. Can you talk a little bit about Lori's role as the family historian and a bit about her journey writing this book, David? Lori was always the consummate student and researcher. And she studied at Barnard and she has a law degree and she was involved in architectural preservation. And eventually she worked at the Metropolitan Museum as a researcher and a writer. And it was somewhat of a natural thing for her to do research and delve into the family history. This is the end product, which I think is, I think it's a testament to who she was and the effort she put into it. 
There are quite a few key players written about as contributors to the evolution of Zabars. Can you tell us about the eras that Zabars has gone through and kind of who were some of those key players that helped shape each era? Certainly into the 1950s, it was my grandparents. My grandmother you know, made the coleslaw and the gefilte fish and my grandfather ran the shop and you know, he was the businessman. And unfortunately, he passed away in 1950 while my father and his older brother were still in college. My grandmother pulled them back into the store to help her. Getting through the 50s and into the 60s, my uh, older uncle was focused more on food and cheese and smoked fish and began roasting his own coffee. And Zabo's been roasting coffee beans for more than 50 years. In the 60s, more and more people were traveling in Europe and were looking for the things that they'd seen or what they, what's being made in restaurants and the big influence of French cooking and Julia Child. So the real food revolution happened in the 60s and 70s in New York, and we were part of that. They brought in Murray Klein. First, he was a worker in the store. He had had his own houseware shop, and he became a full partner. He was being competitive with Macy's and other stores and caviar and food processors, new types of food, things that were in restaurants, cheeses, other things coming from Europe at that time. That helped drive Zabar's as someone who was very up-to-date with the trends. So who's running the store now? Like, Who do we have to thank for this culinary mecca still being there? Well, my Uncle Saul, who's 93, and my father, who's 89, they're still here almost every day. At any moment, David, there could be 23 Zabars working in the store. Well, <laughs> there could be. I, usually, it's maybe up to a half a dozen at this time. But almost everyone in my generation and in Willie's generation have worked here at some time. Uh, we pulled in Willie and his three brothers were all here for Hurricane Irene in 2011. Well, Willie, that brings up a good point then, or a great question for me. I mean, I know it would be crazy for me to work with family like this, but how do family and business mix at Zabar's? I, I think I might go nuts if I had to work with my family all the time like this. I love them, but holy cow. Yeah, you kind of summed it up. Uh... <laughs> You know, at the end of the day, you say, okay, I got to see these people at social events. I got to go, like, you know, I was living with my parents for a long time after college. So I was like, okay, after work, I got to go see them. So it could definitely be challenging, but at the end of the day, we're all working towards the same goal. We all love this place. We want to keep it going. We want to keep it in the family. And if you're working for people who are not your family, it's hard to separate from it. It's hard to say, okay, I'm going to like go home. I'm going to move on. I'm going to deal with it on Monday. You know, you can't really escape it. But it's really nice because, you know, I get, to, I get to see my dad a lot more than I normally would. It goes the same for my grandfather and all these other relatives, my brother Danny. It's really just a kind of hub for the family and, and obviously run into other family members here all the time. So like a lot of things, it's a, it's a mixed blessing. But I think also uh, sometimes it's necessary to change what you're doing here. I was a smoked fish buyer for almost 10 years, but that... It's like a 24-7 job to make sure, check inventory quality, et cetera. And there was a point, you know, I had a growing family and I had other demands. I said, I got to switch out of this. And I worked more in the office and in other things. Sometimes in a family, uh, you need to change jobs to do what's uh, necessary at that time. David, how much has that smoked fish changed since, you know, 1934? Like, is it, is it 
that different? Well, yeah. Most people have, when they speak with smoked salmon, they mean mild-cured Nova Scotia. A very small percentage is the salty lox that our grandparents ate. Up until, I would think, the 1940s and 50s, either there was fresh-caught Canadian Atlantic salmon, which was called Gaspé, or from the West Coast, salmon was filleted and packed in salt. It was in wood barrels, and then it was shipped east. So you either had salty lox or you had a, uh, a dry-cured, very much fancier Gaspé salmon, which is more like a Scotch salmon. The other transition since the 80s is mostly farm-raised salmon as opposed to wild caught. So last one for me for both of you. For someone maybe who is not a New Yorker or someone who maybe who hasn't been to the store before, what do you think is, you, you would say is the one part they have to come see? You have to come see this at Zabar's, Willie. You got to get the coffee. Especially if you're visiting, it's something that travels really well and, you know, you can make it at home however you make your coffee. And it's it's just, it's really one of a kind. I mean... You know, the beans are custom roasted and you just get flavors you're not going to get anywhere else. One thing, if not unique to us, we're known for the smoked fish, the white fish, the sable, sturgeon, smoked salmon. So if that's something you like, you're going to get the highest quality here. After learning some Zabar family history and getting recommendations from Willie and David about the coffee and smoked fish, we wanted to get a sense for what it's like to shop at Zabar's. Our producer, Emily Cherish, was with David and Willie and captured this tour, complete with the soundtrack of a Zabar shopping experience, that famous Mozart symphony that's been playing on the Zabar speakers for more than 30 years. We're on Broadway now, about to enter Zabar's. We're walking in right now. On the left is our famous olives. We have both a service counter where we will custom cut the cheese you want. So we have piles and mountains of cheeses you might not see anywhere or certainly not at such a good price and then we're here we have the mezzanine we're going to go upstairs to the mezzanine now we have an upstairs housewares mezzanine uh, so it's an adventure to come up here and see all the cooking equipment we have so we're here at the deli department we have plenty of different kinds of prepared food, but we also have all the various deli meats that you might need to get custom sliced. This is actually the department where I have worked the most. Uh, then we have the cooked and prepared foods. We have everything from uh, grilled lemon salmon to beef bourguignon. And at the rear, we have rotisseries where we're making rotisserie chicken every day. We also got knish and strudel all the way at the back. That's the entry level position. When you start working here, you're entrusted with the knishes and the strudel. And then if you prove yourself and uh, you are above the age of 18, you can use the slicing machine. And then if you really knock it out of the park at the deli, you get to work at the fish counter, which is where we are now. Right now we're looking at the fish counter. If you look inside the refrigerated display case, you can see the white fish, you can see the sides of salmon, you can see all kinds of tasty stuff. And behind the counter, you have everyone working away, slicing these very, very thin slices of fish. And Mikey, what do you got to say to Connecticut Public Radio? We slice the best salmon here in the city at Zabar's. Come check us out. So we're now moving back towards the front of the store. We got Akhtar here. Akhtar. Hello. I make the sandwiches. Yeah. <laughs> Akhtar's the best. All right, we're here at the bread. 
we've got dozens of different breads. Uh, we have Eli's seven grain, who's my uncle on the east side. We have many, many rolls. We have Italian sesame twists. We have white Pullman loaf, many sourdoughs, raisin pumpernickels. Bread has always been a very strong point for us. This is one of the best smelling parts of the store, I gotta say. So we're now at the coffee department. You see we've got big wooden barrels full of coffee beans. Got a couple different scales. And then we've got the coffee grinders, the burr grinders. And we've also got all these drawers of loose tea. A lot of people don't know this. We have a lot of great teas at Zabar's. What are we grinding today? It's uh, Zabar's signature blend. And we're grinding it for a paper filter. Thanks for joining us on this little tour of Zabar's. I hope to see you here soon. Oh, gentlemen, we appreciate you guys. You're a, a New York staple, and I can't wait to come in there again really, really soon. Thanks a lot for joining us here on Season. Thanks for having us. That was David and Willie Zabar from the iconic Upper West Side Gourmet Grocery Store Zabar's. There is much more Zabar's family history to learn about. If you're a fan of the store or you just love a great American dream story, Zabar's has a podcast. Our producer, Emily, is also the producer of the Zabar's podcast, and it's available everywhere you find your podcasts. It's also a really fun listen. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, two local bagel makers we want you to know about. One is a legend in Newtown. The other is giving New York bagels a run for their money. When you pick up a bag of our bagels, they're typically warm. So some people like to give them a little bit of a hug or put their nose over and give it a great <laughs> smell. You're listening to Seasons on Connecticut Public Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. There's a bit of a subtle bagel theme running through this week's show. We're featuring Jake Cohen's Everything Bagel Galette recipe on our website. And Zabar's is certainly famous for their bagels and schmears. Just look at their Instagram. We want to introduce you to two local bagel makers now. Adam Goldberg is the baker and owner behind Pop-Up Bagels based in Reading. Up until 2020, Adam hadn't given bagels a second thought. But his pandemic baking hobby turned into a subscription bagel service that got the attention of the New York Times. We talked with Adam about all this bagel buzz and what makes his bagels better than those in the bagel capital of the world. Don't be mad, New York. Adam's bagels are so good and so sought after. The one and only New York Times writer Priya Krishna recently asked, is this the best bagel in New York? Dun, dun, dun. Adam Goldberg, welcome to Seasoned. Hi. Thank you for joining us. So I had heard about you during the pandemic. You get people ordering stuff left, right, and center. But then the gray lady, a.k.a. the New York Times, decides to say, who is this guy? What's he doing? So what exactly is going on? We set out about a year and a half ago. I was making bagels in my house, and we realized that the bagels we were making were just so much better than anything you could buy today in a store. And at that time, it was kind of ironic. We set out and we said, let's spend a year or two and we're going to make a better bagel than anything you can get in New York. Uh, and it took about 18 months for them to notice us and 
and really start paying attention. And it's been pretty wild. Our whole mission with our bagel is that we think bagels should always be served fresh, not baked at midnight for a 7 a.m. pickup. And we also think that the common bagel right now is just too big. Nobody really wants this giant, you know, loaf of bread that they call a bagel right now. And you're not really eating warm, fresh bagels anymore for most of the New York or really anywhere bagel shops. I mean, it's very rare to get one. Can you describe your bagels for us and for our listeners? And what makes them different from the, like you said, the puffy, dense bagels or those big loaves of bread that come to mind when we think of a New York bagel? First of all, when you pick up a bag of our bagels, they're typically warm, right? So some people like to give them a little bit of a hug or put their nose over and give it a great <laughs> smell. And then when you pick the bagel up, it's got this like great crisp exterior with I don't want to call it an airy center because it's definitely not airy, but it's got a beautiful open crumb. Um, but when you bite into it, regardless of how light it might feel, it still has the chew. So we've kind of created that perfect balance of I want the chew, but at the same time, I don't want to be eating lead. We're also very liberal with our seasoning on the bagel. So our everything bagel is completely covered in seeds. Our sesame bagel is completely covered in sesame. Our salt bagel, we only use Maldon salt, which is really just the most amazing thing when it hits that dough perfectly and in the oven, it bakes off just right. Um, and it gives you just the greatest flavor and texture. And that's really what we're all about is great texture, great flavor, and not overdoing it. I can vouch for the fact that you cannot see any bread on your bagels if you order them with toppings like an everything bagel. It's true, um, which I think is kind of like your unique twist on the bagel. I know of you because during the pandemic, friend of the show, Stephanie Webster of CT Bites was like, so there's this guy. He's making bagels. Now, Stephanie and I are born and raised in New York City. So we were like, who in their right mind is going to try to have bagels, make bagels in the state of Connecticut? And here we are two years later. So tell us about how this started. And did you ever suspect that it would, it would lead to where you are now? I never expected we'd be where we are today, certainly when we started. I was really just kind of bored during the pandemic and doing a lot of baking. And after a few days of making bagels at the house, I went to the bagel store because my wife said, get out of the kitchen. You're making a mess because when you make bagels, there's a lot of steam involved and seeds and flour and, you know, being very inexperienced at it, we just kind of made a mess. And so we went to the bagel shop, we came home and the kids were like, we don't want these. We want your bagels, dad. And I was like, okay. So every weekend for that summer of 2020, I made bagels and I had the bagel pickup window in the back of my house. And Stephanie Webster was one of the people who found out about it and would come and pick up bagels for me. It just got to the point where at some point the Tabies who own the Welk and, and Don Mamo basically called me and they were like, you need to try selling these. They're too good to be giving out. So we went and did a pop-up in Don Mamo and we just kind of gave bagels away and, and they were gone in like a couple hours. And then after that, we started selling them and they were selling out in minutes. And, and then we would do 30 dozen and then we would do 50 dozen. And then we thought like, oh, we'll do like 50 dozen a weekend. And then it went to 100 dozen a weekend. And then it went to 200. And then very fast went to 300. And at that point, we set up a subscription service, which I looked yesterday. We now have 450 subscribers. Holy cow. 450 people have a standing order either every Saturday or Sunday or every other Saturday or Sunday to pick up our bagels. They, they have a standing order, and every week we change the cream cheeses and butters. 
and they pick up a dozen fresh bagels and a butter and a cream cheese or two cream cheeses. If you're not on our subscription plan, our bagels go on sale every Sunday at three o'clock for the following week. Pretty much our bagels right now sell out within about a day or so. You talked a little bit about how there's a lot of steam and a lot of flour. How is your process? Is it any different than making a normal bagel or is it just that little extra love you put in there? Yeah, our, our process is a little different. I, I can't really say everything that we do, but we definitely we bulk ferment our dough a little bit differently than most bagel shops. And our, our dough is also a little bit lighter, uh, a little bit higher hydration than, than your average bagel You know, let, that turns to lead after four hours. Adam, are you a trained baker? Was this a side hustle? How did, where did you get schooled in the art of bagel making? <laughs> it's called COVID Zoom classes with friends. It was uh, me and a couple friends. We called ourselves the Doughboys. And we just made sourdough bread and drank wine pretty much three days a week during the early COVID years or months. But you weren't like worshiping at the apron of a mom when you grew up or a nana? No, or a... I, I always cooked and entertained a lot, but I never never had anything to do with baking. Baking to me was always too scientific. If you If you grill a steak a minute too long, it's fine. If you add a little bit too much yeast, you've actually destroyed the bread. So it was too specific for me to really want to be involved, but... I just kept getting so much enjoyment watching people eat these bagels, and it just kind of fed off itself, and I never stopped, and I still love it. That's fantastic. All right, listen, you got to talk to us a little bit about what you call your epic schmears. People seem to be as excited about your schmears as they do the bagels. So our epic schmears, every week we try to create different ones. Um, I'm a butter guy myself, more than cream cheese. So I like to get like a little spicy butter. We do a hot honey butter. We're doing a peach butter this week, which is amazing. And then on the cream cheese side, you know, some of our favorites have been like dill pickle cream cheese, which is pretty awesome. We're doing a cinnamon raisin cream cheese this week, capers and red onion cream cheese. So we, we always try to change it up. And that way, when you're getting your bagels every week, there's always something new to kind of mess around with. Well, one of the many things I love about your bagels, not just the taste, is uh, on the bag, you get this saying that says your bagels are not famous, but known. Where did you get that little catchy phrase? So in a nightclub in Reykjavik in 2017 or 18, we were sitting next to a group of guys that everyone was coming over and saying hi to them. And there were these like three or four, you know, really attractive 20-ish year old guys. And my wife finally looked at them and said like, who are you? Are you guys like famous? And his response to her was, no, we're not famous, but we're known. (laughs) And we all looked at each other at that moment. And there were four of us, there's two couples. And we looked at each other and said, we need to use that one day. That's one of the great things anyone's ever said. So the truth is, when we when we launched the business, I actually went on Google to find out if that was like a catchphrase of theirs or a trade, like if it was something that maybe these guys really used that in a thing. But there was no one ever in the history of the Internet that used the phrase not famous, but no. So we've now, you know, recently filed for the trademark and the patent and, you know, whatever we need. And that's kind of our tagline. And we're just going to roll with it. That's a fantastic tagline. I love that. I wish I thought of that, but unfortunately, you got it. Yeah, but that's where it comes from. And they are clearly, you may have to change that line because your your bagels are clearly becoming famous. Yep. We're not going to change the line, but we're 
we're actually thinking of coming up with a with a line of famous and known shirts and hats for some of the guys and girls that have been eating our bagels who are quite well known. So we we want to make sure that, you know, they're not underrepresenting themselves. Well, Adam Goldberg, it is finally so nice to match a face to a bagel. Thank you so much for making my Saturday and Sunday mornings delicious. Adam, we appreciate you, man. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Want to get in on the bagel action? Go to popupbagels.com and get on the list of subscribers or find out where and when the next pop-up will be. There's one more local bagel maker we want to shine a light on. Eunice Laverty is the owner of Bagel Delight in my hometown, Newtown. She's been running her busy shop and connecting with the community for more than 25 years. She took a quick break after the lunch rush last week to talk with Chef Plum about her shop and what her loyal customers mean to her. Well, Eunice, thanks for joining us on Season. You are literally a legend in this town. You know that, right? I don't know that. Oh, come on. Absolutely. Oh, no. Come on. Eunice, how long has Bagel Delight been around and how long Uh, have you owned it? We were the owners right from the beginning. Uh, I believe we've been here 27 years. Wow. 27 years. It's a long time. It is a long time. It is. Well, for any restaurant, it's a great amount. It's like a a landmark, you know, to get past that 25-year mark. That means you're not going anywhere. Well, I'm kind (laughs) of right here. I'm not going anywhere. (laughs) That's right. So you're affectionately known as the bagel lady here in Newtown. Why do you love bagels so much? Oh, I love them because we just, we do a great job making them. Can you talk a little bit about the process of how you guys make bagels? Sure, sure. Uh, Well, you have to make a bagel the day or two before you bake them. They have to rise. They have to sit in the walk-in at least a day, if not more, to rise. Then you have to boil them and then bake them on burlap strips. The burlap, so that I'm burlap, picturing like so, so they don't they don't the spread, crust, right? Right, so gotcha. they don't spread and they get crisp. Okay, they, the outside, outside of it, yeah. Get crispy. I mean, your yes. bagels are crisp; they're delicious that way. That, that's are. that's for sure. And that's they kind are. of the trademark of it, isn't it? Yes, it is. I mean, now you're definitely a, one of the best bagel makers on the planet, that's for sure. But like I said, you're a legend here in the community, and Newtown loves you so much. How much does it mean to you to be? part of this community and oh, every, I mean you know everybody by everything. name yes we've seen kids grow up yeah we've seen kids get married have children the kids bring in their fiancés how important is it for you to have that connection oh very extremely very much so I mean, you've I mean they're nice our family you'd right. be great to my kids yes. they come in. talk a little bit about the bagels what's the most popular seller plain plain bagel plain is yes plain everything really? with nothing on it or we have to have a Just schmear a schmear yeah a schmear, a schmear, as we don't say, as <laughs> a schmear, a schmear. So yeah. the plain bagels, everything so bagels. everything, everything, and then going down. The sesame, okay. poppy being the least, multigrain, egg everything is very popular. Now. Wow. Okay. Egg, egg everything, multi everything. So you're a mother and a grandmother. Tell us the role of your family in the business. Well, right now my daughter is working with us. My son is a teacher in upstate New York. And he comes down to help us every other weekend. He has four children, and he usually brings at least one, if not two, with him when he comes down. It's free labor. It is free labor. <laughs> it is. And I get to see my grandchildren, That's which is even great. Better. Yes. I mean, you guys are busy in here. If you come in here in the morning, even in the middle of the week, it's slammed. We're very happy to have everybody here. We're very blessed. So what is the response you hear from maybe someone who has your bagel for the first time, or, or even from customers who have them on a regular basis. What is it they love about the bagels? And uh, do you have a story about a loyal customer who's kind of stayed with you forever? Oh, we you have people share? that are here every day and getting the same thing yeah. every day. 
Yeah, is they, the, the yeah. reaction to that bagel the first time they get it? Are they like, oh, oh is- yeah, they come back. In fact, a guy just called me, called here and said, that was the best bagel I've ever had. Wow. Yeah, a gentleman from New York. That make you feel great. I huh? know that's great. How about I that? mean, there's you can't beat that. It's those little moments that's in the business, right? right? right those little moments. Right. Well, that's great. Well, you know, thank you so much. You're a legend. Hopefully, You're welcome, uh, you'll be chef. here forever. Oh, thanks, <laughs> thank you so much. Thank thanks, you. Chef. That was Eunice Laverty, owner of Bagel Delight in Newtown. Visit our show page for links to everything we talked about in today's episode. There are recipes from Jake Cohen's book for challah, matzo ball soup, and that everything bagel galette. There's also links to Zabar's and our two local bagel spots. Go to ctpublic.org slash seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Seasoned is produced by Robin Doyen Aiken, Katie Talarski, Emily Cherish, and Catrice Claudio. Michaela Savitt helped this episode as well. To keep up with the latest on Seasoned, follow at ctpublic on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And we're at WNPR on Twitter. Or just follow hashtag seasonedct on all platforms. And don't forget Restaurant Road Trip at ctpublic.org slash roadtrip. This week, our trip, Match Burger Lobster. And I try to stay out of trouble. Thanks for listening, everybody. You can catch past episodes of Seasoned on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe and never miss our conversations with people making great food and drink in our state and our region. We see you, New York, and we'll see you next week. Next week.